Welcome to the Parent Matters Podcast, where we help you navigate the ever-changing landscape of parenting and equip you with tools to confidently parent your children. I'm Susan Stutzman, and today we're talking about how child mental health therapy can help children with ADHD. And to help me do that, I want to welcome Dr. Lauren Smith, a child therapist in the area um, at Agave Studio for Psychotherapy and Spiritual Direction. Welcome to the show. It's so, so good to be here. Seriously, I'm so honored to be a guest. Well, thank you. And I'd love if you could just share a little bit about yourself so that our listeners can get to know you before we start. Um, You know, tell us a little bit about who you are and what brought you to... um, become a therapist that works a lot with kids with ADHD. And tell us a little bit about your practice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So actually, before I entered the mental health field, I was a special education teacher for three years. I completely fell into it in an under-resourced community in rural North Carolina. I did not know that that was a thing that could happen. But of course, my experience with ADHD really, I think, started in that context. Um, was working with a lot of children with um, co-occurring diagnoses or Mm -hmm. co-occurring exceptionalities in the school setting. Uh, And ADHD was often one of those diagnostic sort of presentations. Uh, And so... I was also working with a lot of uh, trauma-impacted children in that community, and that really was what led me back into the field was kind of trying to figure out how to tease apart these different diagnoses and how they can actually overlap, um, and then also really gaining the tools to, to treat these concerns because um, I was seeing so much in the classroom that I couldn't necessarily respond to mm-hmm. um, because I was responsible for teaching these children. I really wanted to gain the tools to do that. And so since I have been in my clinical training, I, I just graduated with my doctor it in August. Congratulations. Um, And so I now have, thank you, I now have a few years of training under my belt and predominantly have been working with children, um, Mm -hmm. often with ADHD as sort of the primary or sole diagnosis, but then more often than that, children who have symptoms of ADHD as well as other diagnoses, um, anxiety, trauma, depression, all sorts of things. And so uh, I've been doing that for the last few years and even got to train here at Kid Matters um, for a short time, um, which I really loved. And so now I'm working actually more with adults than I have in the past, which I really love. And you had actually told me um, in my training that working with children makes you a better adult clinician. And I have found that that has been true, but I'm still working with children as well. And, um, absolutely love that work. Cool. So, um, you just, I know you mentioned a number of things as you were introducing yourself, but one of the things that I just want to highlight is you got your doctorate and your doctorate is, um, in clinical psychology. And so, um, the type of work that you do is primarily mental health therapy Mm -hmm. as well as neurological or um, uh, neuropsych testing, Mm -hmm. correct? Yeah, so I don't specialize in neuropsychology, but I do have experience with neuropsychological or school neuropsychological testing predominantly. Um, So looking at things like ADHD, learning disabilities, reading concerns, um, those sorts of things, um, autism spectrum related concerns. And so that is something that I do have training in um, as part of my program. But then there are also psychologists who specialize in neuropsychology, which, you know, can that's encompasses so many different things. Right. Um, And so I I do specialize in therapy predominantly with children and actually now have a certificate in infant mental health as well. So working with children zero to five. Uh, So that is sort of where I specialize. um, And often that that requires, you know, assessing some 
school-related concerns or concerns that will impact children in the school yeah. setting, um, which yes. would require some school. Well, I want to have you come back on and talk about infant mental health because <laughs> that is that in a, in and of itself is fascinating. Yes. Agreed. Um, and really important, I think, to set the foundation for children yes. when they are um, when their brain is growing so quickly yeah. and rapidly, yeah. and then you know after that five years, um, one of the things you know, I'll just name for our listeners is that oftentimes then our brain starts to prune back. It's like, you know, we just have so many, so many neurons yes. when you're born totally. and, and then we <laughs> are figuring out which ones we need to use. Right. So it's kind of like, which paths are we going to drive the most yeah. on? Yep. Right. Yeah. And then, um, and then clearing those so that yeah. they're easier um, versus having every road available to us. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's important and it's an interesting topic especially related to ADHD. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, let's have another conversation about yeah. that. Yeah, but, I, sure. but But before we, um, but I'm, I'm just so tickled that you're here. So thank you. Um, <laughs> and so good to be before here. we jump into talking about how mental health therapy can help children, um, especially with an ADHD diagnosis, can you just define for our listeners um, what you're referencing sure. when you use those letters, yeah. ADHD. Yeah. So ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. This encompasses a number of symptoms. Um, there's actually three types of ADHD. So we have inattentive type, which predominantly presents as things like struggling with attention and concentration, uh, whereas hyperactivity or impulsive type is more that, like, of course, hyperactive, obviously, presentation where kids um, might behave impulsively. They might um, be moving quite a bit. They might um, interrupt people sort mm -hmm. of unknowingly, mm -hmm. right? Those kinds of things. And then there's a combined type. So kids who present with both sort of symptoms of both of these things. And so it really encompasses a lot of different, mm -hmm. you know, challenges um, with executive functioning. So executive functioning, um, this is, you know, how our brains do things like planning, organizing our environment, um, you know, sustaining attention, mm -hmm. shifting from one task to another. And we yeah. all have areas where we struggle a bit more with executive mm -hmm. functioning. We all have areas where we, we thrive a bit more. Um, children with executive functioning disorders or diagnoses um, tend to struggle a bit more than than those of us, you know, sort of who are considered, quote unquote, you know, typically neurodevelopmental. Right? Okay, yeah. Um, and so I, I think there's just so many different components to that, but mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of generally what we mean. Um, and I, I did listen to your series with John, and I know he sort of um, distinguished it. Yes, this this sort of encompasses what we used to consider ADD. Now mm -hmm. all falls under the um, umbrella of ADHD. Yeah, no, that's good. And I think, you know, just so that the listeners who are um, being able to, you know, follow along, that we make sure that we just define these things. Yeah. And I also just want to link back to um, what you said when you were introducing yourself a little bit about how your, you know, your work with children, especially in school systems, um, and helping them realize or under, like starting to see that cognitive functioning, so that those higher level mm -hmm. brain functions, right, where you can actually know what you're doing yeah. when you're doing yeah. it, and they're not just automatic, right, totally. um, are impacted by the lower brain functions, mm -hmm. which m ties back to infant mental health and the yeah. way that we um, begin to have 
just even um, internal working models yeah. of how we do things, right? Like, yeah. how do you know in the morning that you get up and you go to the bathroom yeah. and you brush your teeth, right? Like, you, yeah. if you don't do that, it's not necessarily bad, but some people have a working model of this is, you know, my yeah. set schedule. And that is informed by all these different yeah. things that <laughs> you learn when you're an infant. Yes, yes, absolutely. In the context of whatever attachment relationships mm-hmm. you have, right? right? And I think often we we think about behavioral, quote unquote, diagnoses as solely behavioral. And, mm-hmm. and the reality is none of these diagnoses are uninfluenced or, or exist in a vacuum from right. our relational context. And so right. that's really important in the structure, as you've talked about in mm-hmm. past podcasts, that um, caregivers can put in place, whatever that might look like, actually help facilitate these things in children. And no child is born with all of their executive functioning developed, right? Our That's brains right. develop from the bottom up and our frontal lobes um, are responsible for a lot of this executive functioning. And so um, really there's a lot of things that we can do in that early period mm-hmm. um, to help facilitate these things in children and mitigate any impact of some neurodevelopmental concerns that might be present. Um, but we also, there's a lot we can do after that zero yes, to five I'm period. You said that, right? right? Like, so if your child's not zero to five, do not worry. (laughs) Don't panic. (laughs) Don't panic. Guess what? Our our brain, our brain, our brain has neuroplasticity. And that's kind of like, it means that it can be moldable, which is amazing. And so, yes, there are more prime times in life where you can affect um, certain functionings for uh, good or um, for I, I don't want to say bad, but like yeah. having being ripe for opportunity yeah. 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 <laughs> or need for change. However, we always have the capacity, no matter yeah. what yeah. age, to um, to also begin to change yeah. things. Yeah. Cool. Okay, well, let's jump in. Um, can you just give our listeners, can you, as a, since you are a clinical psychologist and you know the testing world, yeah. can you just um, explain... Uh, so that parents can kind of understand what, I mean, like, how do you diagnose ADHD? Because it's a thrown around term. And sometimes parents are like, oh, my kid has, you know, attention issues, or I wonder if they have ADHD, you know. um, But how is it actually diagnosed? Yeah. Absolutely. One thing I do want to say, and I don't want to correct you, Susan, but I, I can't call myself a clinical psychologist until I'm licensed and okay, I'm working sorry. towards licensure right now. No, please don't apologize. I just ethically want to make sure that I have put that note out there in the world. But she will be taking but her I'm, E-triple-P in a I, few months. <laughs> I will. Okay. So and hopefully passing. Um, and so I, I hope I have to no be doubts. able to, in the state of Illinois, call myself a clinical psychologist very soon. Okay. What should um, I call you then? Uh, you can call me a doctor of clinical psychology. A doctor of clinical sure. psychology. Okay, folks, <laughs> you that. heard it here. Doctor <laughs> um, of clinical psychology. Yeah. Okay. So sorry. And no, so that's fine. In terms of diagnosing ADHD, there's a number of avenues that can be taken. Often what we see is that children are diagnosed by their pediatrician. Okay. When children go to their pediatrician, there's a screening, right, of various symptoms or behaviors that the child might be manifesting and the parent is answering, you know, yes, my child does that. No, my child doesn't do that. Um, and and that's often what that seems to entail. Right. I mean, because I can diagnose it, you can diagnose right. it without a battery of tests. Exactly. Um, yeah. So you could also go to a mental health professional and through a comprehensive sort of intake interview where we're assessing for a number 
of different types of symptoms, ADHD might be diagnosed in that context as well, or over a period of time mm-hmm. in treatment with a mental health provider. Um, the and third, that's a list yes. in a diagnostic manual sure. yeah. that's standardized. Yeah, the DSM-5 is what that's we're currently right. using. So. TR. <laughs> the TR is out. Oh, it is. <laughs> the, I, yes, right? I don't, it's all don't very know. confusing, right? There's so many different um, now iterations of the way that we understand diagnoses, mm-hmm. which I think is one of the really confusing parts for parents, right? Because, you know, again, right, not that long ago within my lifetime, ADD was the common right. terminology, mm-hmm. right? And so it's really hard to keep up with with all yeah. this stuff as parents. And so I think it can be really overwhelming. And one of the benefits of coming to a mental health professional is that there's they have more time, right, mm-hmm. to, to delve into these concerns and to really fully assess and spend time with your child and determine what the proper diagnosis really is mm-hmm. or diagnoses, right? Many kids experience co-occurring diagnoses. Um, and so, so that can happen over time in treatment. It can happen in the course of, you know, sometimes it's very clear um, and very, you know, sort of more straightforward to diagnose ADHD. And so that can happen sort of within the first couple of sessions. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what's required is a more formal battery, which you referenced before, of very specific types of measures we can use to help assess formally for an ADHD diagnosis, along with other possible co-occurring or um, you know, primary diagnoses that may actually be presenting as ADHDs, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. sort of the, what we see. Um, and so there's a number of different things that we can do. Sometimes that's what we call self-report measures where the parent will be filling out a whole slew of like very comprehensive questions mm-hmm. about what their child might be experiencing or what they've observed in their child. Um, but then there's also direct measures where we can assess for attention and concentration, concerns, impulsivity, those kinds of things yeah. very directly. And we also always want to be asking, you know, about other environments that the child is in. Mm-hmm. So if they're in school, we want to report from teachers so that we're sure that these are symptoms that aren't just occurring in one environment, because often that means there's something else at play here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may, it may not actually be ADHD, but something else that's going on that's manifesting in a very similar way. Uh, so those are kind of the three, I guess, primary ways that we see um, children being diagnosed. And I'm really passionate about, um, you know, I, I think that all of these have their valid places and are very important. Um, and not everyone has access to, unfortunately, mental health care. Mm-hmm. And um, it can be it can be hard to endeavor into the long journey of of getting a a proper diagnosis for your child. But I'm really passionate about it because there are so many things that can present in similar ways, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Trauma, often, especially multiple traumas at a young age, um, can present in behavioral dysregulation that really looks a lot like ADHD. And if we're treating ADHD, but not necessarily the trauma, which is the underlying cause of these symptoms or is exacerbating those symptoms, that can really be detrimental to the child. Or um, anxiety, right, can sometimes Mm -hmm. present in similar ways where we can be fidgety, um, we can struggle with concentration, um, we might even act impulsively because we're sort of on edge. And so... um, I think it can be really helpful to assess either over a period of time or through a formal battery so that we're making sure that we're treating all, you know, co-occurring diagnoses or, you know, the true the true diagnosis yeah. of ADHD is not actually yeah. what is is truly going on. Yeah. And and I think yeah, I love what you're saying because I think it's so important to just remember that there can be many different diagnoses yeah. for 
similar or same presentations, yeah. right? Yep. And it depends, again, what different things you have experienced in life, yeah. um, the good, bad, and the ugly, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, you literally, what you know, what you have gone through will begin to shape the way that you interact with the yeah. world, number one, but also your like, almost like a grid, like, how do you see the world? And then how do you adapt? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so some of these behaviors may have actually, I mean, you know, in some cases, saved people's lives, right? Yeah. Um, but also have helped them yeah. cope, right? Yep. If they were in situations where they didn't necessarily have what they um, needed, yeah. whether it was purposeful purposeful or unpurposeful, yep. um, you know, a parent was going through a stressful time, yeah. et cetera, what have you, um, a, somebody passing away. I mean, mm -hmm. just these things have impact children yeah. in a way that sometimes we don't always understand as yep. parents. Yeah. And so I think it's important, like what you're saying, um, you know, if you have the opportunity to be able to tease it out yeah. so that you can get the help that you need. Yeah. Um, specifically, because there are really wonderful tools and ways yeah. to create change, I would say, yeah. you know, like, yeah. I mean, it's, there's so much hope. Yeah, absolutely. That's what, that's what impresses me so much, the more that I'm on this journey mm -hmm. as a mental health therapist of like seeing the change yeah. that can occur over and over and over again. That's mm -hmm. what gets me up in the morning, like literally, like I'm like, oh my goodness, this actually works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It really is. And I, I love that you bring that up because I think it's understandable, right, that we would focus on behavior because it's what we see. Mm -hmm. And it's often what's so stressful and frustrating for parents who really want to see their children thrive and be able to support them as best that they can. And behavior can be really, really hard. Yeah. Um, and so I think one of the most beautiful things to me about doing this work is helping facilitate a greater understanding between parent and child about what what might be underlying some of these behaviors. And even for children with ADHD who truly meet criteria for that, mm -hmm. right? There are often other co-occurring things that happen, right? Mm -hmm. Children with ADHD often struggle with anxiety and depression because they start to notice as they age that they're not necessarily, they're really struggling mm -hmm. to, to sort of meet the expectations in their school environments or at home. And they're watching other children who maybe aren't struggling in the same ways. And that can be really that can be a hard hit to our self-esteem. And, mm -hmm. and so there can be some anxiety and depression that kind of exists alongside the ADHD that then can sure. exacerbate things yeah. like impulsivity. Or, you know, you might start to see your child behave aggressively in a way that you have not seen before. And that can be really, really scary and concerning as a parent, right? Or as a caregiver. And um, sometimes these are expressions of like some really deep-seated like self-esteem concerns that can happen when when we see ourselves in comparison to other kids and and start to wonder about, you know, why is it that I struggle with these things that are expected of me? Um, and so I think helping parents understand these other concerns that can be going on in addition to, you know, behavior, right? Like there's, I think, yeah. you know, I, I'm of the personal opinion that, you know, behavior can be explained mm -hmm. um, and there's a meaning to it, right? And children don't have the same communication capacities that we have. Like they're learning language and mm -hmm. we actually teach them language for the things that they're experiencing. Right. So we and tell so, them this is what this means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have, we, we help set that frame. Right. And so um, 
they're communicating with us all the time through their behavior. And so I think helping parents listen to that, mm-hmm. you know, that deep listening that we we try to engage in as therapists, mm-hmm. I think can just be so valuable to parents and caregivers. And it's it's hard. It's, it's not easy work, but I think often I see parents just feel really relieved when they start to gain that awareness um, and learn how to communicate with their child around these things. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of pressure to respond to behavior, and that's yeah. understandable. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Okay, so now that we've talked about how ADHD is diagnosed, I'm wonder. Can you just touch on um, different types of therapy mm. in the mental health world? So I just will name because it's important um, to name that you can do OT work. You can do, um, you know, you you can do all different types of. You can do movement therapy. You mm-hmm. can do all these things, but what we're talking about is mental health. So it's more addressing um, our brain Mm -hmm. and the way in which it's growing and then it's malleable Mm -hmm. and how we can actually affect the change. We're not talking, I mean, we can have, you can do medication therapy as well. We're not talking Mm -hmm. about medication right now. These are all valid options, but we're just talking about mental health therapy. So if I was, let's just say, if I was a parent with a kid that was diagnosed with ADHD, mm-hmm. what type of therapy would I want to look for, in mm-hmm. your opinion, that would help them with sustained attention and different executive functioning skills? Like, um, I know we've talked on the podcast before, like with friendships and social skills and those types of things. Like, what would I look for and mm-hmm. why? Yeah. I think one of the things that's really hard is that there are a number of things out there and every child is different. Okay. And <laughs> and so I think, you know, I have my own personal style and mm-hmm. orientation to therapy and I find it really valuable and I think there's a lot, you know, to support that. Uh, but I think, you know, I also have to be really aware that that no one, no two children, uh, even with the same diagnosis, are necessarily going to need the exact same treatment. And so often it is a trial and error kind of thing. But what is available, you know, there's a lot of behavioral um, therapies, which I think are often considered to be like the gold standard, right? Because we're looking at a behavioral diagnosis. Um, So things like even ABA, which has predominantly been used in the past for autism, can be used for ADHD as well. Um, Parent-child interaction therapy, PCIT, um, which is a behavioral, they sort of integrate behavioral and attachment-based strategies um, to help coach parents and, uh, you know, sort of while treating the child. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, you know, the parent and child are sort of together and the parent is almost the therapist, but the therapist is coaching the parent, right? Mm -hmm. There's also parent coaching, which is its own separate thing. I predominantly practice non-directive play therapy, which can be a bit controversial. (laughs) Um, I think in the field, I mean, everything can be controversial, I guess. Um, But I think the value of non-directive play therapy with children with ADHD is that because they often are experiencing many underlying or co-occurring emotional sort of um, difficulties as a result of their diagnosis or because of co-occurring diagnoses, exploring those things fully, I think, is really important and valuable. And sometimes when we start with behavior, and this is not to criticize any one practice, as I said, I think that they all have their value and their place, and, and each individual child needs different things. Um, 
But the value of exploring those things, you know, we can miss a whole lot of what's going on underneath the surface that's actually exacerbating some of the behavioral concerns Mm -hmm. and and making sort of the relationship between caregiver and child that much more stressful or tense. And so I think providing the space for a child to really process and explore through play has a lot of value with Mm -hmm. ADHD. And there's ways that you can set structure and ritual into non-directive play. It can be a bit more directive with children with ADHD. So like setting... Um, timers to help them know like our session's ending in five minutes and we're going to need to shift our attention from what we're doing to you know exiting the playroom and and exiting the the therapy office and all Mm -hmm. of those kinds of things Um, but but children organize their lives through play Um, Mm -hmm. and so I think with ADHD when we're we're dealing with executive functioning children learn and they communicate through play and so it can actually be a really powerful way to process mm-hmm. both, you know, any underlying anxiety or depression that might be sort of co-occurring with ADHD, but also the organizational and executive functioning concerns that come along with that. We can really practice organizing our lives, first exploring, you know, what is going on for this child emotionally that might be getting mm-hmm. missed in yeah. all these other contexts where we just don't always have time to yeah. sit down. And, you know, as a teacher, you don't have time with every child to really get into, okay, what's going on emotionally and helping provide right. that emotional language to the child. Even if you're just told no multiple times a day or don't do that, yeah, right? Totally. It can cause even more anxiety yeah. because it's like, well, nobody else is being told no yeah. or I'm doing the wrong thing or having strikes against you or, you know, colors or coded. And and again, not that you can't or there's no, I'm not blaming or shaming or saying that's the yeah. wrong thing, right? But sometimes we use techniques to manage a classroom yep. and the children need to discuss, discuss their anxiety mm-hmm. and and what's going on, you know, again, like you use the word co-occurring at the same time, right? Parallel to not being able to focus, they're also anxious because they can't focus, right? Or that they're going to get, you know, a strike or they're going to get, and again, uh, not that you can't have rules or, or because then nobody would learn, right? Right. (laughs) In classrooms. But yeah, I love that you're saying that this you know, non-directive. Also, here at Kid Matters, we utilize TheraPlay. Yeah. So all my therapists here are trained in TheraPlay. Mm-hmm. And TheraPlay is another approach where we use play-based activities to mm-hmm. teach directive skills. Yeah. So yeah. like executive functioning, like, you know, we're going to teach parents how to do mm-hmm. um, simple tasks in a playroom that can translate over yeah. at home. You don't necessarily have to do the activities at home. However, they translate a across the board in being able to structure things. So yeah. sometimes, you know, as simple as like having a beginning, a middle and an end, yep. um, but not telling your child all three, but mm. no, they knowing that there will be those, yep. right, is can be built again in infant mental health mm. or through your schema or rebuilt or or changed as you go along, right? So there's always the opportunity for change, but yeah. in being able to um, help children and parents to be able to navigate understanding of what's going to happen next and trusting the parent and listening right Mm -hmm. but sometimes it's important to actually have those in a in a non-threatening yes environment first yeah and so that can be in non-directive play therapy or or a theraplay or you know there's multiple yeah child cognitive behavioral play therapy right you know like teaching different things so like helping them to have that patience to wait maybe 
from when they're going to yeah. move to one, two, three, go, right? Yeah. Instead of just going whenever they feel like it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or what have you, yeah. right? And and yet play is a child's first language. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, if we really boil it down, yeah. I mean, when a child, you know, when a baby comes out, you know, it's this mirroring, this back and mm-hmm. forth, like they cry, we interact, right? Yeah. Um, they smile or we smile, they smile. Their yeah. eyes light up that... Um, and then they start using toys and they begin to yeah. explain things. Yeah. So toys become like their words. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I love that metaphor. I think it's so true. And I love what you just brought up, the, that interpersonal neurobiological thing that's happening between a caregiver and child, mm-hmm. and between really all of us, mm-hmm. what we're learning. And I, again, I'm not trained as a neuropsychologist, but I, I think I'm very interested in interpersonal neurobiology, especially because of my interest in infant mm-hmm. mental health. Yeah. You know, there's more and more research coming out about how our brains actually communicate and our nervous systems communicate yeah. with each other. And one of the um, things that, that you really exposed me to is synergetic play therapy, which mm-hmm. really is very like sort of somatic, like together, mm-hmm. at least the way I understand it. Yeah. We're naming what's happening in our bodies, right? right. The therapist, it's, it's very non-directive, but the therapist is picking up on cues. Our brains mm-hmm. actually do this, right? We can deeply listen to each other effectively, mm-hmm. yeah. emotionally, um, with our bodies, which sounds very strange, I think. Um, but this happens between parent and child and caregiver and child, but we can miss these things mm-hmm. throughout the day. And I think the value of naming what's happening in our bodies, so like in synergetic play therapy, therapy, you're, you're kind of as the therapist naming what the child hasn't yet been able to name, mm-hmm. right? So we're, we're picking up on how jittery the, the child might be. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm so nervous. Like I feel my hands shaking, right? Um, and putting that language mm-hmm. into the room so that the child understands their, their experience. And with ADHD, it's so easy for the child to miss all these internal cues because they're, they are sort of split between their focus on all these different things. Mm-hmm. Um, really paying attention to bodily cues can be a really important focus of treatment. Mm-hmm. And doing that in a sort of non-directive, non-threatening way with the child can help them slow down. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of helping the child sort of process and, and right. name and label. And then that allows the nervous system to sort of regulate and slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can do that in a way that is both sort of non-threatening and and indirectly direct, right? Right, right. Um, yeah. And so I think there's a lot of value to those kinds of approaches that help children start to regulate their own bodies and their own sort of awareness of what's happening to them internally and what that's signifying to them that they yeah. might be missing. And and a lot of tips, and I just want to name this because as you're saying this, I'm like, oh my goodness, we could also talk about this, go in there's this There's so direction. many things. <laughs> but like the sensory component yeah, that a lot of yep. kids that have ADHD, right, they don't necessarily filter like we do. Like mm-hmm. there's so much stuff, like even in this room right now, like yeah, why am yeah. I, what am, why, how, why am I able to focus on you? Yeah. Right. And so sometimes as parents, I would say it can be really, or caregivers, or teachers, or even as therapists, like that are learning these mm-hmm. things. Um, being able to f- focus on one thing yeah. is actually a skill. Yeah, totally. To be able to 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 tune out. Mm-hmm that there are all these other things in this room or distractions, right? And so part of the therapeutic process, right, is to name that so they can become Mm -hmm. aware because we know through... Um, I again, I'm not a neurobiologist, but like I've read a lot of (laughs) neurobiology um, that where your attention, you know, goes your that or where your thoughts are, that's where your attention and and all goes. Right. So if you can't 
filter your thoughts or move them in one direction, it can be really overwhelming as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Super overwhelming. And I think if we really think about ourselves honestly, right, like when we're, especially when we're stressed or or we're sort of experiencing any number of stressors or we're sick or, or what have you, we sort of are, are, growth areas in terms of executive functioning, if you will, like start to sort of decline, yeah. right? And we have these times in it's our like own lives. It's like survival mode, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like these things kind of just go offline, yeah. right? Or if we're really upset, mm-hmm. you know, we're we're not necessarily going to have access to the same executive functioning capacities that we would under different circumstances. But even on a day-to-day basis, like you're sitting in a three-hour work meeting there are going to be multiple points where your mind starts to wander and or your attention. And that is normal. Right. right. It's totally normal. And so I think if we can increase our empathy by sort of being honest with ourselves about our own limitations because we're yeah. just human and and this is the reality that we live in, um, it helps us better sort of empathize with children who, you know, on a day-to-day basis might struggle with that to a greater mm-hmm. extent and might be even that much more overwhelmed. But um, I think even as adults who might be considered neurotypical, we still have these same difficulties at times. And so I think that can be helpful for us to just have a little bit more compassion and understanding yes. for children. It's like on a continuum, <laughs> yeah, I feel it's like. Totally right. Continuum. So like with COVID, like, you know, we're nearing the one year anniversary yeah. Yeah. of uh, when we as a country yeah. in America went on lockdown, but there, I mean, yeah. it was even before that, right. There were pl- uh, all over the world. Um, but I will say, you know, like realizing like, our capacity mm-hmm. for empathy, mm-hmm. for um, just for holding people's yeah. stuff, for parenting our children, for making dinner, right? Like yeah. those things have decreased because yep. of the stress yeah. and realizing that like even that as an example yeah. is like, you know, like on a continuum. So like yeah. when the world opens up a little more, when you can go out to eat, when you can have conversations yeah. with your friends in a group, yep. right? Yeah. Um, not over Zoom. Your capacity might move along the continuum yeah. a little <laughs> yeah. bit yeah. differently, right? Yeah. And so the same thing with children, yeah. I would say with with ADHD, depending on the environment mm-hmm. and the supports that they have, um, it can really affect the way that they interact with other things in life. Yeah. So then if your child care says, hey, you know, I'm not coming today, yeah. you might have more capacity than if yesterday, you know, you were masked, you don't have friends, you know, that you can talk to in a group, you know, everything's online. You had to make dinner, lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, I mean, like all of these things. So. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It brings up so many different things because I think even for children who, you know, have ADHD and are in treatment and see significant progress, it's not a linear journey. Right. Right. And so there are going to be periods of time where they might be more stressed and they might be more than apt to sort of start to display similar behaviors to, you know, the beginning of their treatment Mm -hmm. and their, their, their sort of journey in that way. And so that can be really distressing to parents. Like, right. oh, we we did all this work and we thought that it was successful and look at what's happening. And I think now is especially a really hard time in that mm-hmm. way. Um, if you're a caregiver or a parent of a child with ADHD and you're home right now um, and they're home right now and they are, you know, expected to be paying attention to school online mm-hmm. and computers are just they give us access to the entire world at our fingertips. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's understandably distracting for children across the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Like children with ADHD, children without ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think 
right now, especially caregivers can be really, really overwhelmed, understandably. So, I mean, they're expected to do so many different jobs all the time, but especially now. Yeah. And, 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 so- and, 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 I, and I just, you know, I know this is a rabbit trail, but I'm thinking about how even, uh, you know, a number of years ago when we grew up, right, like n- not having the access to the fast pace yeah. ability, right? Yep. So like I remember as a child, yes, the, you know, when the, we got our first computer and, um, you know, different things, but it was dial up, oh, you know, yeah, now everything was slow. <laughs> everything is like at your fingertips. Yeah. And so that actually is a component that's important to realize that for ch- people that don't yeah. struggle with ADHD, like, yeah. But kids that do struggle yeah. with ADHD, it's even harder because yeah. of the rapid amount of information that we get mm-hmm. and how do they filter that out. Or if we're sitting in front of, of Zoom and it's boring, of course you want to look at something yeah. else <laughs> yeah, or you're thinking about something yeah. else, yeah. right? And we don't have enough time to process it all. So then we might, w- our mind might wander. Anyway, that's, yeah. a, that's a topic for another day. I mean, it's, it is. There's <laughs> a lot of, I think, rabbit trails with this topic for sure. Okay. I want to talk about how therapy can help children with ADHD Thrive. But before we do that, let's take a quick break because I want to tell our listeners about a free resource that we have for you. Um, You know, if you're parenting or a caregiver of a child with ADHD or even not ADHD, um, we realize that many parents and caregivers can struggle to feel connected to their children. And just like Lauren and I have just been talking about, um, oftentimes, We can get so busy with school and work that we often forget to take time to just connect with our kids. That's why we've put together at Kid Matters a free five-day parent challenge where I will send you five emails, one each day with high-impact, easy-to-do activities that you can do in five minutes or less, or you can do them for longer if you choose, but in five minutes or less to create these meaningful connections and It really, as Lauren and I were talking, can be helpful in a directive way to play with your children, to get to know them a little Mm -hmm. bit better, to build that empathy, to help you develop deeper connections. If you're interested in this, go to the Kid Matters website, um, kidmatterscounseling.com backslash challenge. Um, You know, just encourage you, kids grow up so fast, so don't wait. (laughs) (laughs) And also, just as a quick disclaimer... um, The topics discussed on this podcast should be considered a matter of personal opinion. I know we've been talking about Mm -hmm. that. This is our, um, our, how we see the world, different opinions. Um, But just as a, just to to let everybody know, these do not, these conversations do not reflect professional advice. If you or your child is in need of mental health counseling support, please search out a licensed counselor. And at the end, we'll talk about ways that people can find you too. Sure. And where you're practicing, because she is in the great state of Illinois. <laughs> okay, <I am. laughs> so Lauren, tell us yeah. how therapy can help children with ADHD thrive. What are yeah. some of the ways? How do we know this from research? Oh, I know gosh. you've ne- yeah. you've talked about um, types of therapy, yeah. but how can they help uh, therapy help children? Yeah, thrive? well, I think one thing we're hoping for in therapy is that we're creating ner- n- ner- new <laughs> neural pathways, right? And and we kind of have been talking about the neurobiology, what we kind of understand about that. Um, but because we have this neuroplasticity, we can create new, new understandings and new ways of um, new connections, right? Mm-hmm. And so behaviors can change through 
through these new connections. I, I would argue that often that's happening in relationship, right? As I said before, our relationships help structure our lives. They help us understand the world. They help give us language for our experiences. And so I think often what therapy does, whether it's behavioral therapy, whether it's um, a blend of behavioral and attachment-based sort of approaches, whether it's non-directive attachment-based play therapy, um, we're giving children language for their experiences. We are sort of providing a non-judgmental space where they can come with their full selves, Mm -hmm. right? All of the things that may sort of make them feel ostracized at school or make them feel bad at home, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's doing the best that they can, generally speaking, right? But but children often feel this way when they have ADHD. And so coming into a space and and knowing, like, I get to be my full self here, and we're going to process and explore whatever needs to be processed and explored, and whether that's behavior and directly targeting, sort of helping support, um, minimizing some behavioral dysregulation that we might see, or whether that's exploring the emotional impact of, of displaying these behavioral um, sort of dysregulations in school um, or wherever the, the case may be, um, it allows that space that, mm-hmm. that often children just by nature of schedules and all of these things just don't necessarily have. Mm-hmm. And that, that relational context actually helps develop these new neural connections that, that create new behaviors, create new habits. And again, as I said, right, we're not saying that okay, this isn't a cure, right? Like we're not curing. um, Everybody, you know, sort of experiences um, dysregulation at different points in their lives and and that's going to vacillate. Um, But it really helps support um, and and create a foundation for new behaviors and new ways of seeing the self and understanding the self and and our worlds. And I think that that's really valuable to children who often feel really misunderstood and... um, and, and don't necessarily understand their own experiences and why they may yeah. um, be struggling in the way that they are. Yeah. No, I think that's so, so important to share with our listeners. But also, you know, as you were talking about it, it reminds me of, like, when I've had really fantastic experiences, mm. like, I love to eat. So, you know, like, going to some uh, a place where yeah. I can get something, and I'm lactose intolerant, so I could get something that's amazing and you know I will never it's almost like I won't forget this experience even if it's one time right or I only go once a month or once a year I still it still lives in my Mm -hmm. mind and it gives me hope that there could be something else Mm. and I search out or want to cook better Mm. right I don't you know I I do like to cook but I don't always have a ton of time but I know oh my goodness food could taste this good, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's, that is, if I may, you know, and tell me if I'm wrong, but there's part of a relationship that's ongoing, mm-hmm. that's therapeutic for mental health. There are lots of different components that it's helping with, but mm-hmm. one of them is laying a foundation that we can be in a space and talk and feel safe and in our body, mm-hmm. not that they aren't safe, um, but like yeah. a, a safety of being able to just say and do mm-hmm. things and process through them and know that there can be people that can help you to filter things mm-hmm. out and then help those kids find those other helpers yeah. too, yeah. right? Because sometimes it can feel so ostracizing mm-hmm. to have a diagnosis or to not necessarily know what's going on with yourself or as a kid, you know, like because it takes a while to understand or know what's going on for children. And if they're told a lot, don't Mm -hmm. know, or they have all these problems and then they can manifest in all different ways, you know, this can be a new and reparative experience 
And again, no blame on parents for Mm -hmm. not knowing or it not being aware, but sometimes we just don't know. And then all of a sudden it's like, man, there's these symptoms keep showing up. Maybe we should check it out. Yep. Yeah. And I think, I I mean, therapy is, I think, hugely important. I'm obviously a huge advocate of therapy for so many reasons, but, you know, especially for children. I think Mm -hmm. that's something I'm so passionate about. And it's one part of a holistic Mm -hmm. sort of approach, right? Right. I think most children need, um, I mean, all children need supports in many different places, Mm -hmm. right? So um, I think whatever your approach is, I think parents are always going to be involved in the conversation. How do we support parents? This is another benefit to therapy, right? How do we support parents as they support their kids? How do we support caregivers? And that's hugely important Mm -hmm. um, because often caregivers also feel really alienated Mm -hmm. and, and, they might experience their own um, really intense or, or distressing emotion around what their child is experiencing. And understandably, that can then impact their ability to respond and know how to respond. And, mm-hmm. and that's completely understandable. So I think um, we definitely want to support parents. We want to advocate for children in the school systems. Um, they may need other other things like OT, um, especially kids with these sensory concerns, mm-hmm. right? Like we want to help support sensory development and all of these things. And that doesn't just happen in a vacuum with one practitioner. You know, that is an interdisciplinary, mm-hmm. um, multi-person sort of yeah. collaborative thing that needs to happen. And so um, therapy is hugely important. And I don't think it's ever one part of the picture, right? Right. And working, and uh, I'll just name too, like the interdisciplinary, also having a ther- finding a therapist that can not only work with the parents, but also yeah. work with the OT. So if yeah. there's incorporation of different things, that mm-hmm. if there's not um, conflict, again, yeah. working yeah. with, um, working with the, with the pediatrician yep. working with um, just to make sure the developmental milestones are being hit. And, yeah. and is there anything else that should be concerned if there is a psychologist that's yeah. um, working with them or a psychiatrist, if yeah. medication is needed yeah. or determined to be um, a, a healthy route for a child. And yeah. Yeah. The, and, but making sure that the team is talking so that the child can get the best um, yeah. out of all of it, yeah. which is, basically a full-time job for any caregiver. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, it can take so much. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Okay, well, Lauren, you've we've talked about a lot of stuff today. We have. And I want to have you on again to talk about infant mental oh, health. Oh, I'd love that. Um, but, you know, before you go, is there anything else you think that we should know about ADHD hmm. that you didn't um, get a chance? Or are there any books or resources that you would recommend parents... Um, to utilize. Mm -hmm. And then we can put those links in the show notes. Yeah. A couple books that I always recommend uh, are The Whole Brain Child um, and the Love Dan Siegel. No, yeah. No Drama Discipline. No Drama Discipline workbook. Um, I will say that one thing I've found about that is, you know, parents definitely need to work on their own regulatory capacities, right? Mm -hmm. Like we need to be fairly regulated to be able to access the emotional resources needed to help our children regulate. Mm-hmm. And so that's... Which is hard. It's hard. Oh my goodness. So parents and caregivers, it's okay if you also need support. Like yeah. professional support, totally fair. If you need your own therapy, if you need it's, your own it's place not just to okay. I think things. I think it should be mandatory. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and I think that that's a really beautiful thing when I mm-hmm. see caregivers like start to invest in their own yeah. um, places where they might need some healing or support. Um, but those are two resources that I find really helpful in helping sort of think about behavior and how children sort of when they have access to, you know, the, the sort of um, 
thinking, resourced adults. Yeah, yeah. Think, well, that and, and thinking to be able to yeah. actually take in mm-hmm. consequences or learn, yeah. you know, about whatever it is, like the discipline that we mm-hmm. sort of have to do when we work with children, you know, right. or, or care right. for children. And so um, I find those to be helpful um, yeah. in a lot of ways. Okay, so whole so. brain child and no drama discipline yeah. by Dan, Dan Siegel, Siegel and, and Tina, Tina Payne, Payne. Yeah. Bison. Yep. Yes. Okay. I always okay. I always mess that up. <laughs> Their newest book as of this date, I think, is the Yes Brain oh, Child. Have I you read, read it? it? No. Okay. It's a it's all about it's I, it's a fascinating read. Okay. I do like though. I think that I would I always like you. I I always think that starting with the whole brain child yeah. to understand even the children's capacity and one of my favorite resources in the whole brain child is in the back. It tells like developmentally mm-hmm. where what your child's brain is doing yeah. what you should expect yeah. and it's a helpful guide for parents because there's so much information yeah. all over but this man is a, not only a medical doctor but he's also yeah. a um psychiatrist Child psychiatrist. Psychiatrist or psychologist. Anyway. Mental health um, professional. (laughs) He's something. He's an MD and yes, and a mental health professional. And he went to Harvard and and I mean his research is so intricate and spot on, but it's written at such a helpful level yeah, so that accessible. anyone can yeah. can understand it, but it also gives you hope. Yeah. I remember, man, when yeah. that book came out, it yeah. was like a game changer in our field. Yeah, I actually think I read your copy. I think you lent <laughs> it to me. And I think that's such a helpful component of this because often what we're expecting of children is actually not developmentally appropriate. Right. So yeah. I think helping... Um, parents understand where their child is in their development and what they're actually capable of at that time is hugely important. So it can be a real relief to parents to know, oh, actually, my child doesn't, they they aren't there yet, right? Right. Like the thing that I thought they should be doing they're, they're just not there in their development, and that's okay. Um, so sometimes we're pathologizing or we're, we're looking at something as a symptom when actually it's just not it's not quite where the child is yet yeah. in their development. So, yeah, I love those as a resource. Awesome. And if people want to find you and have yeah. you be their therapist, yeah. where can they find you, Lauren? Um, you can email me at lauren at agavechicago.com. Agave, like the, the um, like, succulent. Mm-hmm. Um, and That's you can tequila is made out of? Yeah, it is what tequila is made out of. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, you can find me. Why am I blanking on the name or the the website? I think Agave's website is agavestudio.com, I want okay. to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't often visit our website, so I should have looked that up beforehand. <laughs> uh, but you can find me there. And you can also find me on Psych- Psychology Today. But Lauren Smith is going to be a little bit difficult to, <laughs> to track down. Unfortunately, my name's That's not right. super identifiable. <laughs> well, but you are as a person. So. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, <laughs> Oh, this was us, so fun. This so was great. a blast. And to our listeners um, and watchers, <laughs> yes, that's fun. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you found this conversation useful, please subscribe to the podcast and join me next time for the Parent Matters podcast. And remember, don't parent alone. <laughs>